Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. Those of you who listen to this podcast on a regular basis know that we talk a lot about the growing number of business leaders who are focused on purpose beyond profit, on stakeholders as well as shareholders, who want to not just make money, but make money by solving the problems of people and the planet. Well, our guest today is the CEO of a company that has been doing pretty much that from its inception, Ryan Gellert of Patagonia. The company makes outdoor clothing, but it does much more than that. It commits itself to addressing a broad array of social, environmental, even political issues. It's a different kind of company, and today we want to explore how it's different, why it's different, and whether it may be a model for others. Ryan Gellert, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So let me get you to put it in your own words. What makes Patagonia different? I think what makes us different is, you know, we have seen ourselves as an experiment in doing business differently pretty much through the whole 48-year history of Patagonia. And, you know, I think in the early days, I mean, the company was founded to make equipment, first hard goods, climbing equipment, then apparel for outdoor exploration. And I think when you're passionate about the outdoors and you see the damage that's being inflicted by development, by changing climate and other other forces, and you run a business, you feel a responsibility to use that business to try to be part of the solution to to the degradation that we've seen. So I think in the history of Patagonia, it's kind of come in different chapters. First, it was around minimizing our footprint, then scaling solutions, then supporting activists and very much with a focus on grassroots activists on the front lines of the environmental crisis. And then I think in the last handful of years, I think we have felt like we really needed to wade much more directly into activism ourselves. But our whole reason for being and our mission statement is we're in business to save our home planet. Yeah. So let's talk about the broader activism, because we're in the midst right now of kind of an extraordinary battle going on in the United States within states over voting laws and hours of access, mail-in ballots, all of that. And you have one party, the Republicans, who are focused on putting some limits on that, which tends to benefit them. And the Democrats are trying to make it possible for as many people to vote as possible and are less concerned about security. I get why Patagonia cares about the planet. You're in outdoor equipment, people who love the planet. But why the heck should Patagonia weigh in in a politically fraught issue like voting hours and access to polls? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the context for that's a couple of things. One is that I think the narrative right now is that there's all these woke corporations who have somehow found religion on these topics. And the reality for us on the voting topic, which is probably not well known by many, is that We've been encouraging both our customers and our employees to vote and vote with the environment in mind for two decades now. So us taking a position on voting is not new. I think also when I think about the existential threat that is the climate and ecological crisis, I believe that it is man-made, it is real, and that the only way we're going to solve it is if we bring to bear everything that we have via government, via business, and via individual actions. And part of that individual actions is through people exercising their voice through part of their role as, as a part of civil society. 
I think on the specific issues in Georgia and in this specific moment, I am a really big believer that our democracy doesn't work if everybody is not treated equally and being treated equally on this topic means having access to the polls. So I think that's a critically important piece. And then finally, what I'd say is I think we're living in a period now and I wish I felt like it was just this past 12 months. I actually think it's going to define our future of intersecting and overlapping crises. And I think the days of us being able to focus on one thing at a time, unfortunately, are probably behind us. Yeah, I do want to come back to that because it seems like there are so many problems and Patagonia can't take them all on. But I just want to make sure, I mean, you have injected yourself, a lot of other companies have too, in the middle of what is a very fierce partisan political fight. And you're clearly taking sides in that partisan fight with one party over another. Does that make sense for you as a company? Yeah, let me let me step back. And again, first of all, we've been talking about voting for nearly two decades. Second of all, in 2018, to directly address low voter turnout, we joined with, I think, a couple other guests that have been on this podcast before, both Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, and also Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi's. And we co-founded Time to Vote. So again, this is not an issue that we we just jumped into in response to the current political yep. environment. It's one we feel very strongly about, have a long track record on. I think the fact that, and I know I've heard this stated on this podcast as I have elsewhere, you know, and I'll say the same, I don't think fundamentally this is a partisan issue. I think it has become very polarized. That I, I'd be remiss not to acknowledge, but it's not a partisan issue. I'd like, I believe our democracy runs better if people participate. And I think it is fundamentally critical that people have equal access to participate. And I think that when it gets described as Republican versus Democrat, I think it fails to overlook the fact that we're an independent organization. We're not an extension of the Democratic Party. We were certainly in opposition across the landscape on a host of topics, a, a long list of topics with the last administration. We, we feel like we're moving in the same direction as this one on a host of topics as well. But make no mistake, we are not an extension of the Democratic Party. Do you hear from customers who say, hey, I don't want you getting involved in this political issue? Or do most Patagonia customers know where you stand? I think it's both. I think the vast majority of them do know where we stand. But yeah, uh, you know, our social media um, engagement and communication, our inboxes, our customer service lines. When we take a position, we hear from a number of people, some of whom candidly, I think, profess to be customers, probably never were. But I, I know that some of them are. And I know that some of them have a opinions that are very different than ours. And I really want to make sure that we engage with those people, even if we agree to disagree on some fundamental issues. And so once you decide, once you declare that you are an activist corporation, how do you decide which issues to be activist on? There are so many problems out there and Patagonia can't solve all of them. No, and I think that last statement is really goes to the heart of it. And I think therein lies the challenge is, you know, it's not about just what do you feel strongly about? It's what do you think you have the legitimacy to comment on? And also, and I think this is a critical piece as well, how do we move from just offering comments to really taking steps and, and, and providing some kind of level of support? Where is the action? And so for us, we have a framework, which is, you know, it's not a formalized one, but it's how does this issue affect us? Do we have credibility on it? Have we spoken on it before? Do we have our own house in order? How are our employees going to think about these things? And are we saying something additive? And is that something that we're saying combined with actions that we're taking? So I think in response to the current wave of legislation that's seeking to restrict access to voting, for us, we took three steps and we thought all three of them were equally important donating a million dollars to organizations working to fight voter suppression, 
advocating very publicly our support for two pieces of federal legislation, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And then number three, making a commitment to continue to work against other restrictive voting laws like the ones we're seeing in almost every other state across the U.S. Yeah. And are these decisions made by U.S. CEO? Do you have a committee that vets all the issues when they come down the pike? What I think there are a lot of companies that are wrestling with this right now because for you, it's a habit. For many, it's new. And they're trying to figure out how do we decide which are our issues and which aren't. Well, I'd say, first of all, one thing that we don't have to navigate is the public market. So we're a privately held company. So yeah. that whole sort of level of complexity, we just we can sidestep that. The other thing that I think makes Patagonia unique is we've got very dedicated owners. And so on an issue like the one we're speaking on now, but on others like it over our history, you know, usually what we do, and it's not a, an overly formal or prescriptive process, is we bring some people together in the organization, we have conversations, we figure out what we think would be additive, and then we go to the ownership and say, here's how we're thinking about things. And, and I would say consistently and overwhelmingly, the response has been, that sounds good you got our full support. And sometimes those can be incredibly, maybe shockingly short conversations. But they are involved in the decision-making. I think they're involved in supporting decision-making. Sometimes they're directly involved in actually making those decisions, but I think that they are, I think it's really important that they're consistently consulted and and kept up to speed. And so, yeah, that's definitely part of the process for us. And is your activism generally good for business, bad for business, or just separate from business? You know, I think that the reality is that as we've become a more vocal leader on a host of topics, and I, I think it's important that I just keep saying, I feel like we've done that out of necessity. This is not part of a community communication strategy. This is not part of a business or commercial strategy. This is out of a real belief that these issues matter and that they are critical to us delivering on our mission, which is we're in business to save our home planet. But with all that in mind, our business has continued to grow as we've been more outspoken on these issues, again, with the acknowledgement that we've had plenty of people that have voiced very consistently and loudly their displeasure with some of the positions we've taken. And I respect that, by the way. You know, I think that people have a right to an opinion. I think we do, but I think they do as well. And when you can exchange ideas, I think that's when the system is working at its best. Have you ever had a situation where there's a clear trade-off where your activism is clearly costing you a, a significant amount of business? I, I don't think we've ever quantified it that way. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the kind of it. thing I'm thinking about is when CVS stopped selling cigarettes, right? That was quanti- uh, that was a quantifiable short-term cost. No, I would business. say for us, the costs are kind of come on the other side. I think when we make decisions to invest money in things that, you know, we feel like we know that we don't have to make those decisions, but we feel like they're critically important, whether that's in giving away money or making some pretty big bets in in technology or or investments in, you know, say it's decarbonizing our business or saving areas that we think are under imminent threat or whatever it may be. So I think that's where we, you know, I mean, well, I'll give you an example from a couple of years ago when the tax code change came through under the former administration, we benefited to the tune of about $10 million. And we committed immediately to giving that $10 million away to the same grassroots organizations working on environmental topics, because we felt like the change in the tax code uh, for corporations was irresponsible, particularly in the middle of this climate and ecological crisis. And so that would be where I think on the other end of it, we just continue to sort of tax ourselves. Um, I think as far as quantifying the impact from customers now, I, I, I think we've never really looked at it that way. 
I'm here with Joe Ukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment? You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. You know, in August of 2019, the Business Roundtable put out this statement of changing the statement of purpose of a corporation, focusing not just on shareholders, but on on other stakeholders, employees, the planet, communities they operate in. And there's been an awful lot of talk about that over the last couple of years. Do you feel from where you sit like you're getting more company? There are more companies joining you in your because you were a pretty lonely outlier for most of your existence. I, I think the short answer is yes. I think that there's a couple of really important distinctions there. I think that, you know, if you if you build relationships with the leaders of different companies, I think what you come to understand pretty quickly is the level of commitment both personal commitment and also organizational commitment. I think that we feel like that there are some companies that are really consistently showing up and becoming part of the dialogue. And, you know, again, I'll highlight PayPal and Levi's as two co-founders at Time to Vote. And I think that I think the commitment there is very real for them on these issues and on others. I think that the reality is this. I think we've got a decade or less to stabilize our climate. And so I think, you know, this kind of incremental progress in substituting big statements and words for action, when you believe that you've got a decade or less, it's the system is broken, to be clear. And so I think, yeah, it's great that more companies are speaking out and that there is a recognition that perhaps capitalism and, and businesses within the system have a responsibility to do more than just make owners wealthy. But that's, I wouldn't call that progress when you look at it against the size of the problem. The climate isn't going to be affected much by the actions of a clothing and climbing gear company. Well, we do have a footprint and I think it's critical that we take responsibility for that. But I think as one company with a voice taking responsibility for its footprint and all the rest, we're not going to solve the problem on our own. That's obvious. I think what we can do is really prove that you can build a viable business that resonates with people that tries to run business as cleanly as we know how, and also tries to be and commits to being radically transparent in the evolution that we're on in this goal to being a more sustainable company. We've been at this for 48 years. And the truth is we're not a truly sustainable company yet. If anything, we're a responsible one because we continue to wrestle with the next sort of the problems that we learn as we work through the ones, you know, we work through the easy ones and they just get harder from there. 
You're committed to getting to net zero by when? We're committed to getting to carbon neutrality by 2025, but that's a really, you know, I think that statement requires a lot of unpacking. And what that means is we, we know that we can't reduce our way out of this by 2025. We look at all the levers that we see as things we know we can do and things we think we might be able to do, and it doesn't get us there. And so the next area that we're focused on right now, and this is still very much in the early exploratory stages, so it's an unproven one, is insetting, which is we're creating a mechanism where a multitude of partners that work within the same factories and in mills in our supply chain can come together and fund investments in energy efficiency and better sources of energy, amongst other things, to really make big impacts at scale. And then ultimately, the offsetting piece, which I think is often considered a dirty word, and I think for good reason. It's, you know, it's rife with protecting areas and forests, not necessarily under imminent threat. And I think we really feel like we've got to create kind of a high bar in using nature-based solutions around both conservation and restoration. So that's how we're thinking about it. Still very much uh, a work in process, still very much in the journey. We have seen a huge proliferation in the number of companies in the last, I would say in the last two years, who are making commitments to carbon neutrality with different dates, but all, you know, 2050 or before. The percentage of companies in the Fortune 500 that do that has increased dramatically in the last few years. Is that real? Is there something significant going on there that's going to help us get to the where you think we need to be? Uh, yes and no. I think that the fact that that's working its way into corporate America, the fact that it's becoming part of the vocabulary, I think creates an environment where there will be meaningful progress. Am I optimistic that we're going to get there this way? Am I optimistic that those goals will be reached? Not at all. Many of them are tied to 2030. And I think late in 2029, I think the penny's going to drop in a lot of those organizations and they're going to, you know, they're going to have to acknowledge how far yeah. off the goals they are. I look at the announcements from the Biden administration. I really applaud the bold thinking and the ambition. I really applaud the holistic nature of the commitment, this understanding of the intersectionality between economic growth and job creation and environmental justice, along with climate and carbon goals. And then I think the devil's in the details and, you know, what the commitment is, what the roadmap is going to look like that gets us there is anything but clear. And so we're very invested in seeing how that comes together. You are a B corporation, which means you have to go through a pretty significant, pretty rigorous set of accountability exercises beyond the normal accountability to owners. Do you think that helps? I do. You know, it's funny with, you know, we're a pretty unique company and we've been that for, you know, the vast majority of our nearly 50 year history. And so I think often people sort of assume that maybe we join that movement as you know, kind of a nod to the movement. And I think the reality is, is we've learned a tremendous amount by being a part of it. I think it's made us better, particularly on social standards. I think it keeps us working within a framework. Our goal was always to outperform the framework to the best of our ability. And I think just being part of that community, um, I think has been a real asset to us. I would say, you know, going back to your your comments about the business roundtable, you know, those statements, they're great, but why aren't the companies making those statements on a path to becoming a B Corp? Because the framework exists. Um, and I think it's a, a thoughtfully rigorous, appropriate framework for companies kind of across industry. And so I think that's a great way to also prove 
to your employees and your customers that, that you're serious about this. So you'd like to see many more companies move in that direction? I would. And then let me counter that by saying, you know, I think that so many movements like this, the way that the tank gets bigger is the standards get diluted. And so I think I'm going to give you both. Yes, I'd like to see it happen, but I'd like to see absolutely no dilution of the standard. And I think therein lies the challenge. I think it's doable, yeah. but it takes a real ambition and commitment to make it happen. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, most people would think you have a pretty cool job, right? You know, it's Patagonia is a cool brand, great clothes. We assume you probably spend your days as CEO out climbing rocks and uh, riding in kayaks and all of that. How did you get there? Um, I wish that I could tell you that that was how I spent my days. It's how I spend some of some parts of some days. How I got here, I grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida. I grew up in a place that was really, you know, surfing was kind of throughout the culture. It left a real mark on me at a young age that, you know, if you could figure out a way to combine your passion and your profession, I don't think life gets much better. For me, that passion became clear when I started rock climbing in my early 20s. I moved to Salt Lake City, started rock climbing, and I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life doing that. And so I have. I spent 15 years with a company that makes climbing equipment and uh, spent some of that time in Asia, um, came to work at Patagonia, spent six years in Europe. And it's, I've always been able, super fortunate to operate at the nexus of, of my passion. And, and also, let me be clear, I love business. I love strategy. I love working with people. And I love the fact that for a business like Patagonia, you know, people often ask, are you a for-profit business or are you an NGO? And the answer is yes. You know, we're a really unique combination of those two things. And the business part, which I love, is the marketplace doesn't care if we live or die. We got to show up every day and earn our place in it. And I, I love the honesty and the challenge of doing that. Are you a capitalist? I, you know, I think our system's really broken and I don't, I can't point to another system that I think is better. I think we should invest our time and our energy in improving on the one we have. I, I not yet at the point of saying, I think we need to blow it up, but it is deeply, deeply flawed. How did you come to this conclusion? When did you come to this conclusion? I think like many things in life, I think it's been a real progressive kind of learning journey. I think part of it's just in personal life, understanding some of the, the gross inequities in life. I think some of it has been this, you know, personally as somebody who has traveled a lot around the world and, and climbed and, and backcountry snowboarded and, and surfed in many different places, I think you, you see the degradation of our, our natural environment and I think some of it is in, in my roles in business and, and also as a parent of two young kids and just understanding that so many of the things that I took for granted growing up are not necessarily going to be available to my kids. And I think whether it's the in the natural environment or it's in this sense of polarization and truly it seems like parallel paths of how society is interacting and consuming information and the conclusions they're drawing. I think, you know, each of these things is, is are sobering realizations as you think about two kids as mine um, navigating in this in this evolving world. And what would your advice be? Because you talked about PayPal and Levi's and you definitely have more and more CEOs like Chip Berg and Dan Schulman who were wrestling with these issues in some ways, you and Patagonia uh, have a much longer history with this. What's the advice you would give to other CEOs who are wrestling with these issues? I think you're never going to get anywhere if you can't 
align with your ownership in whatever form that comes around what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, I think that's, you know, the, the landscape is littered with broken marriages where those two things didn't line up. I think there is an incredibly strong business case to be made. And I think so often it's made around the acquisition and retention of talent. It's also made around Gen Z. And I think that's great for us. I don't know that that's our language as much as we just do what we believe is right. And we do it because we believe it is right and we do it for the right reasons. But I think that there's an incredibly strong business case for this. I think the world is shifting. I think the expectations of business are shifting. And I think the expectation from employees, particularly the top talent, is shifting dramatically. And so I think being inconsistent or out of tune with this, I think, is a real risk to businesses. I also think if you step back and look again at everything against the backdrop of the environmental crisis, there's no business to be done on a dead planet. And so I think we all should be deeply invested in solving this. And I think we need to kind of get out of this, not just short-term thinking, but also this kind of race to the bottom competitiveness that exists. You know, one of the things that we've not talked about here is our three, three plus decade commitment to onsite childcare and very generous paternity and maternity benefits. And, you know, we haven't done that because we market it. We haven't done that because we want to acquire the best talent. And that's a strategy that's run by HR. We've done it because we believe it's critically important to create an environment where, number one, our new mothers don't have to make tough choices between a career and motherhood, that they can combine those two things that we can continue to benefit from having an employee group that is, you know, 50% female and that we don't have people having to exit the workforce as a result of starting a family. And ultimately that's been fantastic for us. And by the way, walking around campus, when you're seeing kids and mothers with kids and fathers with kids, just creates an incredibly unique environment. Yeah. Well, Ryan, last question. Are you at the end of the day, an optimist or a pessimist? I mean, you obviously see some big problems out there. You've given the, some sense that there's some progress going on. Are we doing what we need to do to get business where it needs to be to address the problems of the planet? Well, I mean, I think like my answer is probably to a lot of your questions. I'm going to give you the nuanced place between. I, I think the reality is I'm pretty pessimistic, if, if I'm really honest with you. But I also believe that we've kind of renounced the right to just sit around and be pessimistic. I think, you know, the cure to depression is action, as our, as our founder and owner says often. I also think, you know, if you just show up every day, have some fun doing it, but with a deep, deep commitment. I think that that's honoring the significance of the work and the challenge. So that's the way I spend my time. But if I step yeah. back and ask, are all these trends moving us in the right direction? I'm deeply concerned. So you're going to go down fighting. I'm going to go down fighting. <laughs> We're going to go down fighting. And there's no other way to go down, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you for your passion and your commitment and good luck. Thanks a lot, Alan. Really a pleasure. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. Written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.